0: Welcome to Russian History Retold, episode 289, Russian and Soviet Cuisine, part 2. Last time, we began our series with some of the dishes and meals I enjoyed in my childhood and beyond. Today, we continue our journey into the essential foods and their preparations through Russian and Soviet history. But before we get into today's episode, I want to recommend a podcast I've been listening to that I think you'll find interesting. It's the History of Vikings, hosted by Noah Tetzner and available wherever you get your podcasts. Featuring conversations with leading historians about Vikings, North mythology, and the history of medieval Scandinavia. Recent episodes include King Hardald, Bluetooth, Viking Age ghosts and zombies, weapons and battle tactics, and here's an interesting one, the Vikings in Russia, and most recently, an interview about Viking Yule, the Norse winter holiday. Subscribe to The History of Vikings wherever you listen to podcasts. And now to our episode. In literature, there was a kind of rivalry that went on between the rich and the poor when it came to food. Lynn Visson, in her book, The Russian Heritage Cookbook, writes the following, quote, In Alexander Pushkin's novel, in verse, Eugene Onegin, the hero, a rarefied westernized dandy, eats rare roast beef and imported delicacies, such as truffles, foie gras, limburger cheese, and pineapples, washed down by Bordeaux and French champagne. In contrast, the family of the heroine, Tatiana, the incarnation of the pure Russian soul serves pickled mushrooms, blini, kvas, an oversalted pirogue, and Russian champagne. She further goes on to say 40 years later, in Anna Karenina, Leo Tolstoy describes how Konstantin Levin, the author's mouthpiece for his ideas on Russian attachment to the land and to the Russian way of life, thinks to himself that he would much prefer she, cabbage soup, and kasha to the French white wine, the cachet Blanc, and imported Flensburg oysters, which Anna's brother Oblonsky orders for him at lunch in an elegant restaurant. In his novel Oblomov, Ivan Goncharov describes how life revolved around the kitchen of the hero Ivan Ilyich Oblomov and his parents' estate. Quote, their greatest concern was the preparing and eating of dinner. The entire household took part in the discussion. Everyone suggested his favorite dish, soup with noodles or giblets, or tripe or prawn or red and white sauce. All suggestions were thoroughly discussed and then accepted or rejected by a final decision of the mistress of the house. For the inhabitants of Oblomovka. Food was the primary and most important concern in life. This was also true when we headed to my grandmother's house for Sunday dinner. My mother and she would get into raging arguments for days leading up to the dinner, but with my grandmother winning pretty much every time. One of the most essential cookbooks produced about the Russian cuisine was by Elena Molokovits, and the book was known as The Gift Young Housewives, which was published in 1870, contained over 4,000 recipes. It ranged from Haute French cuisine to Russian peasant dishes. My grandmother and mother always kind of leaned towards the French style, being from very wealthy families, but when things got tough as they did after World War II, when they lost everything, they focused on the simpler foods from the Russian side of the cookbook. Immediately after World War II, my mother and father settled down in Hamburg, West Germany. Food was extremely scarce, and they had to make do with what they could scrounge up. Having been the daughter of wealthy parents in Yugoslavia, my mother didn't know how to cook as she was always surrounded by servants and cooks. But something in her Russian genes enabled her to feed my father, then my older brother who was born in 1948. What really changed things for the Shouse family was the job my mother found at a fish processing plant. The owner took a liking to my mother and father and put my mom into the fish chemistry section where she could ensure the fish that they were buying was safe to eat. Along the way, she was given some extras with instructions on how to prepare them. This was when her knowledge of Russian cuisine came into play, as there was always an abundance of fish available to pretty much all levels of Russian society during Tsarist times, and that's because of all the different rivers and lakes that you find in Russia. Kira Petroskaya, in her Russian cookbook, relates the struggles her family faced when the Soviets took control of Russia and the changes her grandmother had to make regarding food she writes, quote, anybody can learn how to cook. The best example is my grandmother, who had to learn how to cook for the first time in her life when she was well on in her late 50s. Until then, my grandmother, Baroness von Hoffenberg, had scores of servants and cooks. She further writes, quote, she herself spent a few months in jail, But such is the stamina of truly great spirits that she not only readjusted to the new life of poverty, but made herself learn a trade, taught herself how to cook, and in the end was better able to improve her position to such an extent that our little family of three lived just as well as our proletarian neighbors, who had no problems of readjustment from extreme wealth to extreme poverty. Well, you fast forward to the 1960s after I was born. My family used to head up to northern Ontario, Canada to a cabin at Lake Mississagoggin for two to four weeks every summer. We could afford some basics like bread from the bakery a mile up the road or fresh eggs from a local farmer. But the primary source of food, especially protein, was from the fish we caught. While many fish indigenous to Russian lakes and rivers are not found in North America, substitutions are easily made. Pike, trout, smallmouth bass, walleye, and perch were plentiful and easy to catch. We would have them poached, baked, fried, and at times cold after cooking them in broth. As I grew older, I had to learn not only how to catch the fish, but how to process them to the point where I could fillet a fish in a minute or two. And that ability hasn't left me 50 years after our last visit to Lake Mississigogon. Well, going back to the last episode, we ended it talking about zakuski, which is Russian appetizers. I'm going to continue a little bit with that discussion, especially regarding caviar. And I'm not talking about fish roe, which is extremely popular, but vegetable caviars, which are very important to the lower classes of Russian society, as the real deal obviously was way too expensive for most. The main ingredients for this type of zakuski are eggplant, squashes, mushrooms, and beets. All are finely diced, some are pickled, some are cooked, and all have some additions such as mustard, horseradish, garlic, various herbs, and salt. Cucumber is another favorite appetizer and is prepared in many of the same ways. Of course, herring is a very popular zokuski with numerous scrumptious preparations. Salads are another mainstay in Russian cuisine, and one of the most famous is Salat Olivier. While undoubtedly created by a Belgian-French chef, Lucien Olivier, it has become a Russian classic, Olivier was the head chef of the popular Hermitage restaurant in Moscow in the 1860s. No one knew what the original recipe called for, but in the book Guide to the Fundamentals of Culinary Arts, published in 1897 by P. Alexandrova, the recipe called for grouse, crayfish, potatoes, cucumber, lettuce, aspic, capers, olives, and mayonnaise— The author wrote that veal, partridge, or chicken could be substituted, but the authentic recipe contained grouse. Whether this is the actual recipe is debatable, but many say this version is pretty close. In Soviet times, salat olivier was modified to deal with inferior ingredients. The grouse was replaced by chicken or sausage, crayfish by hard-boiled egg, cucumbers, olives, and capers by pickled cucumbers and green peas. According to Kira Petroskaya, today's Salat Olivier is a simpler offering, containing boiled chicken, potatoes, hard-boiled eggs, dill pickles, and mayonnaise, with some salt and pepper to taste. Other popular salads often include pickled vegetables, something that helped them stay preserved for long periods of time. Cucumbers were always a favorite amongst the Russian cooks I met in my early years. The other really, really popular salad component was mushrooms. Mushroom hunting, as my mother would call it, was another way my brother and I would spend time in the Canadian forests and northern New York state forests. Of course, looking for mushrooms can be hazardous to your health, as there are many that are poisonous and or hallucinogenic. But luckily, my mother was pretty adept at knowing what was safe and what wasn't. Mushrooms are also abundant in Russia and used in all sorts of ways. Marinated mushrooms using white vinegar, salt, sugar, peppercorns, allspice berries, bay leaf, onion, and of course, fresh dill. A dill is found in so many Russian dishes, you'd think it was the national herb. Another staple of Russian salads is radishes. As Dara Goldstein puts in her book, Beyond the North Wind, quote, Russians love radishes, from garden variety red to pungent black, enjoying them not only fresh, but also salted, marinated, or turned into savory preserves. If you've never had cooked radishes before, you'll be delighted. Though they retain some crunch, their flavor mellows, and the muted red of their skin is alluring. Along with all the aforementioned vegetables, cabbage is another staple of Russian salads. Whether roasted, boiled, fried, or served raw, cabbage is on every Russian menu, especially in salads. One thing often added to cooked cabbage is our old favorite, smetana. Cucumbers are so often smothered in smetana as well as with Mushrooms. Cabbage rolls are another way that many Russians utilized the versatile vegetable. As Goldstein puts it, quote, Stuffed cabbage rolls are endearingly known as little doves in Russian for the way that they nestle together in a pot like small birds at rest. Most often they're filled with a mixture of ground meat and rice. This brings back so many memories of my mother making these mixed with mushrooms and tomato sauce on weekends. And of course, it'd be topped with a dollop of smetana because, well, why not? Another ingredient that Russians are notorious for using whenever possible is cherries. Sweet or sour, cherries make their way into all sorts of dishes, especially when they pair up with meat. Cherries are such an essential part of Russian cuisine that Anton Chekhov even wrote a play called The Cherry Orchard. In the classic cookbook, The Gift to Young Housewives, there's a recipe for oven-braised veal stew with cherries. As Dara Goldstein describes cherries in her rendition of the dish, Russians are such cherry connoisseurs that they make a linguistic distinction between sweet cherries and sour ones, using two completely different nouns. My mother would be so enthused when cherries came into season. We'd get in the car and head north of New York City to find a cherry orchard to hand-pick a few baskets. She would make a summer berry compote, with sour cherries being the focus, along with any other ready and ripe fruits. In most cuisines, a compote would be used as a dessert. In Russia, it was often used as a drink. They would cook the fruits for a while and then chill them. In making a drink, it would be strained at the very last minute, often right in front of their guests. And as you may know, vodka is one of the most popular alcoholic drinks in Russia and has been for centuries. Unsurprisingly, there are numerous versions of the drink where all sorts of ingredients would be added to the base of pure vodka. Hot red peppers, cherries, tarragon, and even, and I shudder at the thought, horseradish are flavors that Russians use to enhance their favorite drink. When it came to cherries, Russians would make a cherry liqueur that even I, as a young boy, would get a taste of it if I behaved before Christmas. My grandmother would make it as a gift, mixing the traditional standby vodka with sweet cherries and sugar. Unpitted cherries with their stems still on would have a few pinpricks through the flesh and placed into a jar filled with vodka and put in a cold, cool, dark place, but not refrigerated for about three months. Other drinks of note include spitten, a honey drink with cloves, cinnamon, ginger, and cardamom. There would be vendors in the streets of St. Petersburg offering the drink in cold winters. A crouchon was a kind of fruit punch made with melons, strawberries, cognac, white wine, champagne, and soda water. You would hollow out the melon, put in the strawberries and melon balls, and cover them with sugar and cognac and let them sit in the for 24 hours or so in the refrigerator. The next day, you would pour that into a punch bowl and add the wine, champagne, and soda water with ice. Let's now shift a little bit to Soviet times and their unique cuisine, which is based almost entirely on the availability of ingredients. They also based much of their cooking on the experiences of starvation following the Russian Civil War and the period of collectivization, of the farms throughout the Soviet Union in the 1920s and 30s. Instead of food spreads being the focus of the Russian table, food scarcity and scrounging for whatever one could get became an everyday ordeal. After emigrating from the Soviet Union to Philadelphia in the U.S., author Anya von Bremsen, in her book, Mastering the Art of Soviet Cooking, wrote this, quote, Because depleted of political pathos, hospitality, that heroic aura of scarcity, food didn't seem much of anything anymore. Like a raggedy orphan, I paced her apartment repeating to myself our sardonic sardonic Soviet deficit or shortage jokes. Would you uh, slice 100 grams of uh, kolas? Asked a man in the store. Bring the kolas and we'll slice answers the sale girl. Or, why are you emigrating? Because I'm sick of celebrations, says the Jew. But toilet paper, celebration, what call us? More celebrating. In Philadelphia, no one celebrated Oscar Mayer Bologna. In remembrances from her childhood, Von Bremsen recalls, quote, Why do these proletarian Franks remain the Madeleine of every Homo Sovieticus? Because, beside sosiski, which are sausages, with canned peas and kotlietti, with kasha, cabbage-intensive soups, mayo-laden salads, and watery fruit compote for dessert, there wasn't all that much to eat in the land of the Soviets. She further points out that not everyone was scrounging for food when she wrote, "...unless, of course, you were privileged." And our joyless, classless society, this all-important matter of privilege, has nagged at me since my early childhood. The issue of starvation, something that dominated long periods under the Tsars, continued throughout the Soviet period, often because of war, but often because of a poor central planning and the idiocy of the pseudo-scientist Trofim Lysenko, which we did in a episode earlier. Ironically, Elena Molokovitz, the author of the Culinary Bible, a gift to young housewives, would die of starvation in 1918 in St. Petersburg. During World War II, food shortages created incredible methods of creating edible foodstuffs out of what normally would have been considered waste. Potato skins were collected and then processed into a starch like substance that could be made into kissless, a sticky fruit dessert made with, you guessed it, cherry juice. Cabbage, which was so easily grown and harvested, would be used in various ways. One of the most popular was sauerkraut. As Olga and Pavel Sayutkin write in their book, CCCP Cookbook, True Stories of Soviet Cuisine, quote, Finally, there was fermented cabbage. Several 15-ton tanks were, were filled with cabbages, and, as in an ancient vineyard, female workers wearing rubber boots jumped in and stomped about to release their juice. One of the dishes that came out of the change of regime was Stolzhti Salat, a version of our old friend the Olivier salad. The grouse and capers were gone, as neither was to be found anywhere. Instead, it was replaced by chicken, tinned peas, and carrots, with a healthy dollop of mayonnaise. Another version was also known as Moskovsky salad, which was made with bologna, potatoes, eggs, dill pickles, peas, and carrots. After Stalin died, in the early 1960s, Khrushchev proclaimed that Soviet citizens would finally see the ascension of communism by the 1980s. As Olga and Pavel Sayutkin would point out, quote, However, the variety of available foodstuffs was dwindling and the path to the abundance promised by communism seemed to grow longer and more winding every day. A joke of the time, that nobody had promised to feed people along the way to communism, was more of a reality than humor. By the early 1960s, the supply of items that for centuries had been staples of Russian cuisine, salami, certain meats, fresh water, and cottage cheese was becoming erratic. No discussion of Russian or Soviet cuisine can be called complete without talking about kvass. It is traditionally made with rye bread. The first written mention of kvass is found in the Primary Chronicle, describing the celebration of Vladimir the Great's baptism in 996. This mildly alcoholic drink is prepared in a way that's kind of similar, but not identical to beer. You heat the rye bread in the oven, ensuring it doesn't completely dry out. You then add boiling water and sugar to the bread in an enamel pot and let it cool until it's lukewarm. From there, you remove some of the liquid and add yeast until it is dissolved. Then you add it back into the pot and let it stand for 48 hours, partially covered to allow for some of the gases to escape. You then put it into a glass jar, add raisins, cover it, and place it in the refrigerator. After 24 more hours, you carefully pour out the liquid, leaving the white residue on the bottom undisturbed. The raisins are carefully plucked from the glass jar and added back to the now ready-to-drink kvass. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Join me next time when we cover a more somber event in Soviet history. The Soviet-Afghan War, fought between 1979 and 1989. But before we go, I'm going to be starting a new podcast, a history podcast, in January. Its title would be Little Known, No More, a history podcast. What I'm going to be covering is people who did remarkable things, some good, some bad, some horrible, some fantastic, but names that we've forgotten. And many don't know about their lives and what they did, uh, like Ignaz Semmelweis, the physician who pushed antiseptic procedures before Pasteur and Lister. Uh, we're going to be looking at uh, somebody named Li Bing, who created hard- hydraulic engineering in 250 BC. Uh, A few of the names that you've known that others may not know, we're going to do Trofim Lysenko. Uh, We'll do a few others. Uh, You know, Yemelyan Pugachev is one. But it's one where we're going to talk about some of these interesting figures from history. And I think you're going to really enjoy it. I'll have some interviews. Uh, One of the people we'll be doing is Fred Ebb. Uh, For those of you who know something about Broadway, Fred uh, was one of the most prolific uh, lyricists in American history, somebody I got to meet because he was very good friends with my brother. And the story of how they met is going to be part of it. And I'm going to be interviewing my brother about that. Uh, we'll have some others. Uh, a woman, uh, Gladys McCreary, who is just turned 103, just a few weeks ago. And I'll be interviewing one of her friends, Dr. Ann McCombs, who I've worked with for many years, for decades. And she was a very close associate of Gladys. And this woman was pretty much the founder of, uh, I wouldn't say alternative, but functional medicine. And at 103, I met her when she was about 99. And the energy this woman had was just extraordinary, you know, just a brilliant mind. So this is kind of what we're going to be doing in this new podcast. So... We'll end this as usual. Until next time. До свидания и спасибо за внимание.